Good morning. In, in thinking about what I wanted to talk about today, I remembered something from, you know, 30 or 40 years ago in, in January when a, a group of friends of mine were talking over the word that they were going to choose for the year as a sort of touchstone. It's like an, it's like an alternative, I guess, to uh, New Year's resolutions. And I have read these conversations many times over the years, but I've actually never picked a word before. And for some reason, I, I decided to pick one this year. And then uh, so many things changed. Just maybe most things changed. So sometime in, in March, I started thinking about that conversation that I had had with my friends and wondering if maybe we would all like to pick a new word since circumstances were so different. And I realized I couldn't even remember what word I had chosen. So I, I went back and found the discussion and um, asked, you know, if, if everybody wanted to consider a word that maybe reflected current circumstances. And I saw that the word I had chosen was breathe. And I remembered that, that when I chose it, I had been thinking about a speech I had heard uh, just about exactly four years before from a Sikh activist uh, named Valerie Cower. And at the time, I think a lot of people felt like it was a dark time, but she was speaking with optimism about a country waiting to be born and about the promise of that and the, and the pain of it. And the, the key to her speech was in talking about how before a midwife tells you to push, she tells you to breathe. And I was a, I was a childbirth teacher for many years and I've had two babies. So that, um, that metaphor touched me. So in, when I was thinking of my word at the beginning of the year, I, I think that's mostly what I was, I was thinking about. And, and so when I went back to look at this discussion of, of which word to use as a touchstone, and I was thinking about whether to change it, I was really struck by how many people are literally having their breath taken away. So I, I decided to keep, keep my word. And so when I started talking about what to 
started thinking about what to talk about today, I, I decided to talk about why following the breath is uh, one of the most basic instructions to meditators of a, a lot of different traditions, certainly including ours, but not just ours. So there are a lot of points I could make about this, um, but I can't make all of them. So I encourage you to observe this for yourselves. And I'll just touch on the things that are standing out to me the most right now. But it, it's certainly not an exhaustive discussion. So one thing that I wanted to point out is that the breath is one type of interface between the mind and the body. So it's a good way to uh, try to practice Dogen's instruction to study the self. So when you, when you focus on your breath, you'll generally find over time that in order to breathe in the way that we're instructed, you need to learn to sit upright with less tension because you, you breathe with your whole body, not just with your lungs, not just with your diaphragm or your belly. Um, the tension in your body and the position of your body influence your breath. So if you have tightness in your legs, it will influence whether your breathing is deep or shallow. And if you're using your upper back to breathe instead of your belly, it will influence um, pain and tension in the rest of your body. So you, you pretty quickly find out that there's interplay there. And then there's, there's also the fact that we breathe not just with our body, but also with your, your heart, your mind and your heart. So when our emotions are heightened or we're upset, it's very quickly gonna be followed in the breath. So this means that you can check in about where you are by observing your breath. And on the flip side, it also means that you can influence your body and mind by controlling your breath. So it's nice to have that focal point to help us still our minds and bodies. It's really informative too. It's, it's really helpful to observe, but it's not as easy as it sounds. And so <laughs> I think many times when we get that first instruction to follow the breath, it um, sounds maybe a little too simplistic and not what we were expecting for a meditation instruction. I think that's what I thought at first. Like, you know, isn't there anything else I'm supposed to be doing? But it's, it's actually not easy. So when we try to follow the breath, we'll often find that um, we're not following it at all because we're not observing it. We've gone off on uh, some track of thinking. 
or we find that by drawing our awareness to it, um, we're controlling our breath. And those are both fine states to be in. There's nothing wrong with them. But in Zazen, we're invited to try to observe the breath without leading it. Just, just follow. So how do we just follow a voluntary action? If it's volitional, how do you follow it? And then how do you observe your involuntary actions without them naturally becoming voluntary? Um, it's interesting to, uh, to think about those things. So when you study the self by observing the breath, it's in and out. There's no way to be elsewhere other than right here and right now. So it might seem like um, you are your breath. And then when the mind wanders, as it's inevitably going to do, and we notice and return to the breath, if we are our breath, where did we go when we weren't observing the breath? So if you are your breath in the here and now, who are you in other places and times? Those are interesting questions. So that's the second thing that I'd, I'd like to bring up, which is that the breath can be a little uh, peak, like a window on the infant. So by studying the self, what naturally follows is the realization of no self. There was a class recently on the Heart Sutra that, that Colin led, and it was Red Pine's translation. And um, one of the things that struck me in reading that was his uh, translation of the word nirvana as no walls of the mind. And when we are able to sit together in the Zendo, it's, it's a lot easier maybe to see that there's no boundary. There's no boundary between this breath and the next breath, um, between your breath and the person next to you. But even, even now in different homes, very far away, it remains true that you will never find a line between my breath and yours. You will never find a line between your breath and a dinosaur's, between your breath and the moon, between your breath and the other end of the universe. So the breath is l literally 
I don't intend this to be a metaphor. It's literally the universe breathing itself in and out over and over. It never changes and it's never the same. Yeah, the last time I gave a talk like this, uh, somebody asked me a question about how how do we bring our practice from the zendo uh, into the world or or home? And I don't think I had a very good answer then, so I'd like to give it another shot. So I think that following the breath is. Uh, one example of an answer to that question because the breath is with us all of the time in and out day after day year after year paying attention not paying attention in anger in equanimity sleeping Waking inside the zendo, outside the zendo, it underlies every moment, just like our true nature. And to um, imagine that it's inside the zendo and we have to learn to carry it out is utter delusion. So it's the same with practice. It's always with you. Day after day, paying attention, not paying attention, whether you're angry, calm, sleeping or waking, in the zendo, outside of the zendo. Practice and realization are not separate. So a number of years ago, I, I heard Ed Brown in Austin <clears throat> read a poem by uh, Rujing, who was one of Dogen's teachers, uh, I believe the one in China. And it really struck me at the time, so I when I started thinking about this, I, I dug it up and um, I'd like to read it. The great road has no gate. It begins in your own mind. The sky has no marked trails and yet it finds its way to your nostrils and becomes your breath. Somehow we meet like tricksters or bandits of the Dharma. The great house tumbles down. The autumn wind swirls. Astonished maple leaves fly and scatter.
I'm going to read it one more time. And I'd like you, I'd like to invite you to take a few breaths and uh, see if you can rest there as I read it. We'll see if the sky finds its way to your nostrils. The great road has no gate. It begins in your own mind. The sky has no marked trails, and yet it finds its way to your nostrils and becomes your breath. Somehow we meet like tricksters or bandits of the Dharma. The great house tumbles down. The autumn wind swirls. Astonished maple leaves fly and scatter. So I think that's a very good way to rest. And rest is important. And that's the last point I, I want to make about the breath. So when we see the breath as a Dharma gate, It's a gate to the realization of emptiness, to liberation of suffering. But as is covered in several of the sutras, um, when you see that, you naturally see that there's a limit, that no limit has a little bit of a limit. So although we can rest there, and we should rest there, we can't live there because even though there's, there's no boundary, the sky has no marked trails, when this body breathes, that body doesn't get oxygen. When this body breathes, other bodies are struggling for breath. When your body breathes, it doesn't take the knee off of George Floyd's neck. So we can't be blind to cause and effect. We're still subject to cause and effect. So like the midwife says, breathe and then push.
that's all I'd like to say about it today. Um, but if anyone wants to comment, 